You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America, Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here at Westwood One Podcast Network, powered by Conservative Review TV. That is CRTV, which is, by the way, growing in leaps and bounds. We have so much amazing talent here and really glad to be part of the team. Um, Well, it's late in the day on April 30th. We're closing out the month of April, and it feels like we're really closing out the year of 2018 because Republicans, their work here is done. Um, They were given the ball, possession of the ball by the American people, and they have nothing to do. Both the House and the Senate are on vacation this week. Uh, Don't ask me the significance of uh, late April, early May, um, but they're, they're on vacation. But do you know who's not on vacation? You gotta give them credit. They work pretty hard. The federal courts. See, the district courts are never on vacation. There's endless lawsuits, and they're remaking this country day by day, hour by hour, doing things that the Republican Congress won't do over a period of 20, 30 years for us. They'll do for the left. Um, And I would argue it's not even a right-left issue. What they're doing is a system of governance we never adopted. Now, there's a lot going on. Um, Obviously, like I said, the courts are continuing to remake the country. Just today, another GOP judge, this time Michael Bailson, a George W. Bush appointee in Philadelphia, says that the city of Philadelphia is entitled to federal grant funding. Even though they're a sanctuary city, they get law enforcement grants. So there's that, yet another sanctuary judge. Um, You know, obviously, we got Iran and the news from Israel that. Prime Minister Netanyahu has shown credible evidence, as we've known for quite some time, that Iran is violating the deal. Um, Obviously, Macron and Merkel want Trump to continue in the deal. Conservatives need to be focused on getting him to nullify it, use soft power to fight Iran, not hard power to get involved in Iran's civil wars. The exact opposite of what Macron's pushing him into, by the way. We got healthcare news. We got Alfie Evans' terribly sad story, um, murdered by the state government, which controls healthcare in Britain. And, you know, nobody is pushing for not just repeal of Obamacare, but repeal of HIPAA, the HMO Act, EMTALA, all of the government onerous uh, interventions in our system that is really ensuring that we become like Great Britain, and, and to large part, uh, we've already become like them. We'll have more on that as well. Lots going on in the news, and you know we'll, we'll see how much we have the ability to get to today uh, because it is a new week, and there's a lot going on. We got the caravan where basically our entire sovereignty is being destroyed where these people are able to just come here and assert asylum. And even if we wind up throwing them out, it encumbers our border agents with nonsense. 
and they can't deal with the true threat, the diversion tactics of the cartel. So these are all issues going on. You know, in conservative media, the big scoop is on this White House correspondence dinner and the insults that were hurled at the press secretary, um, Sanders, as well as just other vile comments made. And look, I, I understand these people are vile. But I've said this before. As conservatives, we need the cake before the icing. We need the melody before the harmony. We need an, an agenda to fight the left with, and an agenda even without the left that's good for the country before we could kind of get involved in the insults traded back and forth. I'm not trying to defend the comments. They're horrible. But what are you going to do about it at the end of the day? For those of you who haven't heard this analogy before, for those of you who are sick and tired of my football and baseball analogies, here's a tennis analogy for you. You know, whenever you have the big Grand Slam tournaments, whether it's the French Open in, in France or Wimbledon in, in London, it's awful playing against a you know the the home field crowd. If you're playing, let's say, a British tennis player in Wimbledon, it's just miserable. The crowd's going to heckle you. You know, every time you miss a shot, they're going to be cheering. They're going to be yelling at you. Um, you know, you got the crowd against you. But the crowd is not where the points are made. The points are made on the field. And there's nothing you could really do about the crowd. Not to say they don't influence the outcome and rattle you. There's really nothing you can do. You could get rattled and start getting into a shouting match with them. Sometimes happens. Or you could just focus like a laser beam on making your shots. And that's what we need a movement that every day is on top of this administration. Here's what you do on Iran. Here's what you do on health care. Here's what you do on immigration. Here's what you do on the courts. One after another, this is a plan forward. So we're not just lamenting and crying and, oh, they're mean to us too. You know, it's terrible. It is what it is. Make them cry. But instead, we don't have an agenda. You know, what's interesting is Republicans have control of everything, and McConnell's gone on vacation. Now, what's funny is that McConnell often hides behind the fact that, look, there's a filibuster. We don't have 60 votes. You need 60 votes around here to do anything. So, therefore, he does nothing. Now, the problem with that argument is, among many problems, that first of all, it's not a 60-vote threshold. It's a filibuster, and you could force a talking filibuster. But let's just put that aside. There's two clear ways. There's two pieces of legislation that you could accomplish something with that makes an end run around the filibuster. One of them is rescissions, and one of them is budget reconciliation. So budget reconciliation you could do any year. You could include with the budget bill, and that's that's how Republicans passed one good thing, the tax cuts, because they had budget reconciliation, which is not subject to the filibuster. So they are refusing to do it this year. You know, we figured, all right, well, in 2017, you do one good thing. In 2018, you'll do one good thing. No, no, no. They're doing nothing good this year because they will not do budget reconciliation. Ted Cruz evidently gave a 
presentation before, I guess it was last Wednesday's weekly uh, conference lunch for the GOP senators on the need to, to refocus on repealing Obamacare and, and, and free market health care and use budget reconciliation and get around the filibuster. And McConnell said, well, we don't have the vouch. No, we're not doing that. The other thing is this budget rescissions bill. So basically, they passed the omnibus increasing spending for most agencies by 15 to 20%. Theoretically, it shouldn't be a done deal. There's a process from the Budget Act of 1974 called rescissions, where basically if the president um, makes an official request of Congress to rescind funding, meaning this is different than the president's general forward-looking budget blueprint. This is backwards-looking. If you already passed a budget and you want to rescind funding, there's a mechanism to force an up-or-down vote in the Senate if Mitch McConnell would allow it to come to the floor and it's not subject to the filibuster. So like, oh, John, we didn't have the, we didn't have the vote, so what are we doing? And then they were holding a military spending hostage and we need so much military spending so we can get involved in all the Islamic civil wars. Um, okay, fine. But now the military spending's in the bag so you could just target the non-defense discretionary spending in a rescissions bill and you could do it with 51 or 50 votes in the, in the vice president's signature or you know, tie-breaking vote. And then that will go to the president for a signature, and you're going to cut spending. So what did he say? Mitch McConnell said, no, no, an agreement's an agreement. We had an agreement with the Democrats, and we can't renege on the agreement. It's funny. you know, <laughs> McConnell's whole life is reneging on promises, but the one promise he can't renege on is uh, you know, to bankrupt the country along with the Democrats. So – you know, nobody – we don't have a movement pushing back against this and focusing on this. We don't really have much of a movement aside from a couple outside organizations pushing for Jim Jordan to run as speaker and directly challenge not just House leadership but Senate leadership by extension on this stuff and use that as a platform for some of these aforementioned ideas. But no, it gets worse than that. There's a scoop in Axios.com. Now, Axios has some very good sources, and I, I've, I've always said this, that I always assume what they publish is true until it's proven untrue because they, they really have a pretty good track record, very good sourcing. And they said that here's what happened. On April 17th, Mark Walker, he is somewhat conservative. He is the chairman of the Republican Study Committee, the formerly conservative caucus, you know, that kind of became a joke, and that's why uh, Jordan started the Freedom Caucus a couple years ago. But, you know, he sometimes at least complains about bad stuff going on. He doesn't really do much about it. So Mark Walker, from he's a Republican from North Carolina, congressman. He put out a press release attacking McConnell for opposing the White House's plan uh, for rescissions. And, uh, you know, basically accused McConnell of caring more about some backroom deal with Democrats than about the campaign promises. Three days later, Walker had a fundraiser with Mike Pence in North Carolina. Well, Secretary of Transportation Elaine Chow flew down to join him. Now, for those of you who don't know, the few of you who don't realize this, Elaine Chow, who is the Transportation Secretary, is Mitch McConnell's wife. Evidently, according to Axios, on the tarmac, Chow said to Walker, Do you know who I am married to? Walker replied that yes, of course he knew. Then Chow said, 
he wanted you to know that he reads everything you put out. Walker gulped and said, understood, and that was it. And then they finish off by saying a child spokeswoman says, we have nothing to add. Um, now, l- l- let's just put aside Walker's just complete patheticness here and you know why he was such a pathetic conservative leader and still is, as most of them are. Um, I would have said, oh, you bet I know who he is. And we'll be coming out with some more press releases. You sure as heck, I, I better hope he reads them. And all the American people are going to read my press releases too, and they're going to know that your uh, husband's a D-bag, and frankly, you are too. That's what I would have said. But, you know, anyway, that that's the type of conservative leadership we have there. But you know what's interesting here? What's lost on people? No one's making this point. Elaine Chow is engaging in insubordination against the president. The official administration's position is to support a rescission's bill. McConnell's not supporting it. Now, that's his prerogative. He's a separate branch of government. But Elaine Chow is not a separate branch of government. As Transportation Secretary, she works for Donald Trump, not Mitch McConnell. So we're going to be making that case, and I don't know why no one's getting on her case. But that's what you have here. And by the way... I've heard another interesting thing. In April, when Mitch McConnell was desperately pressuring Governor Bryant of Mississippi to appoint you know, a solid establishment guy for the seat being vacated by Thad Cochran. So basically what happened there was that I mean, you know, Bryant was dutifully fulfilling the request, but he did not – he didn't have anyone because there really is no establishment 800 pound gorilla in the room in in Mississippi to win. And you know the problem with the establishment is they want to they want to stop Chris McDaniel, but they need a solid candidate, and they they just don't have anyone. And in the end, he had to tap this former Democrat lightweight uh, Cindy Adams, um, who's was I think she was agriculture commissioner, but she was in the state legislature as a Democrat for a number of years. Doesn't inspire anyone, and she's going to get crushed by McDaniel. And McConnell was really annoyed at him. I don't know what McConnell wanted him to do, even from an establishment vantage point, you know, to just invent a candidate. But they were really upset. And evidently, the day day after, Elaine Chow, as Secretary of, of uh, Transportation, called up Bryant and said, "You must declare a bunch of bridges structurally deficient and close them down." causing major headaches there in Mississippi. I'm going to look into this a little bit more. Um, but, you know, a lot of it's BS, and it's just political retaliation, and it's not driven by safety. And this is very concerning that we have Mitch McConnell's wife as a cabinet secretary out there doing his bidding and not working on policy, not working for the president. Very disturbing. But anyway, that's those are the lengths that McConnell is willing to go towards to destroy his party. I mean, I want you guys to think about this for a minute. You look at Nancy Pelosi as leader of the House Democrats. You look at Chuck Schumer as leader of the Senate Democrats. They use every tool at their disposal, every waking minute of their day to move the ball forward for their team. And yet, you have on the Republican side, Mitch McConnell, who uses every tool at his disposal, every waking minute of his day to promote the other side, to move the ball backwards, to toss an interception, to block conservatives 
from making any progress for the GOP platform the way Democrats want to make progress for their platform. This is the imbalance we have in politics, and this is why they're going to get crushed in this election. But ironically, not because they're doing a bunch of good conservative things. It's the opposite. They get blamed for being in power, but they're not even doing anything with it. So this is where we are, and which brings me back to the courts. The Senate's out, out, of, out to lunch for an entire week, literally. And the courts are just remaking America. I guarantee you before the end of the week, this caravan stuff will be in the courts, and the courts will put an injunction on DHS's policies of not you know, immediately granting them asylum or catch and release, mandating that they get released or that the children and women and pregnant ones get released or something or the ones who want abortions get abortions. Oh, whoops, the courts already did that. So today I have out an article I've been meaning to push for a while. I know a lot of people have been asking me, what do we do? What do we do? So I have my article out today with a list of ways to push back against the courts. So if you haven't read a number of articles I've written on this issue before or heard a number of our broadcasts on this, interviews I've done with the media. And by the way, um, my buddy John Hageman, he has a really good show. If you want to see a video of me, I actually hate video myself, but if you want to see video in addition to the typical audio of me ranting about the courts for an hour, I'll link to in show notes my interview um, with John Hageman last Thursday night about judicial tyranny here from my official bunker um, in CR's Northern Command in Maryland. But we have our list out, things that can be done. And you know what's interesting? So we have this disaster where the courts are now declaring amnesty the law of the land. DACA, the law of the land, and immigration statute is evidently illegal. Sovereignty is illegal. So National Review which writes their individual writers and columnists either defend certain judicial supremacy, weak sauce, attack people like me who actually want to do something about it. They wrote a editorial, you know, kind of just an official NRO position. This is terrible judicial supremacy going on. And, you know, a lot of people are emailing this article to me saying, hey, Daniel, looks like National Review is, you know, sounds like you. And that's the funny thing. People often sound like me in the abstract. And I emailed back to some of my friends and said, yeah, but what are you going to do about it? There was nothing in there. It's like, this is judicial supremacy. Well, that's kind of like the attitude you'd have maybe 30 years ago. We've long passed that point of no return. Are you going to demand that Trump follow the law and not follow the court? Oh, no, no, Daniel, you always have to listen to the court. See, that's the joke. This is... The reason why I'm saying this is because this is what we are as a movement. We focus on the commentary as an end to itself. One thing you know about me by now is I'm not a commentator. I'm an activist, and I'm proud of it. You know, Now, I would hope you would learn a lot of information from what we put out. But my end game isn't to have smart commentary as an end to itself. It's to actually make a difference. And if I can't do that, I'll find a, another line of work. So I'm not here just to commentate about how the courts are destroying this country for the next 50 years of my life. I actually want to do something about it. And that's why 
you know, I'm working with some members of Congress, Andy Biggs, I want to have him on the show, congressman from Arizona, Gilbert, Arizona, really good guy, um, probably the best freshman congressman. Um, he, he actually put out a press release that said, we need judicial reform, and until then, Trump should not listen to lawless decisions, particularly when the court is forcing him to actively violate the Constitution and immigration statute. So um, I, I just sent him a copy of my book, Stolen Sovereignty, and uh, yeah, we'll try to have him on the show to discuss some of these ideas. But anyway, we're going to link to this in show notes, all, all, all of our ideas. And obviously, you guys could just read them all, and I'm not going to go through all of the ways now. Some of it we've said before, but I would just urge you to understand that it begins with Congress getting on the playing field. You know, they first have to assert their powers. They first have to use their megaphones rather than saying, oh, the courts decided. I guess that's the law. You vigorously say, no, you got the Constitution wrong. This is our Constitution. And as a legislative branch of government, in terms of statute, in terms of appropriations, we're going to interpret the Constitution the way we see fit. And one of the ideas I write in there. First, you have to understand that courts do not have a bully pulpit. That's one thing they, they still don't really have. The judges are kind of behind an iron, iron curtain. They don't really do media. Um, you know, Israel has a problem with judicial supremacy. There, the judges kind of go out and evidently they, they just give interviews all the time uh, and just start bashing people. Here, they don't really have a platform. They don't. I mean, that, that's the dirty little secret. And, you know, Congress could use its platform, members of Congress could use its bully pulpit to push back against it. I mean, it's that simple. It's absolutely that simple. Um, <clears throat> you know, uh, what is it? Judge William Pryor from the 11th Circuit. Now, I've had my issues with him, but he once said very simple that the court's power, judge's power lies in his art of persuasion. But if your writing is not persuasive, you have no power to enforce it. And that's why I borrow from Professor Michael Paulson's idea. I wish I can get him on the show. It's so hard to get him out of his uh, law school work. Um, but he's a professor at St. Thomas School of Law. He has a suggestion called executive re review and legislative review, just like you have judicial review. And the point is, as we've been ma making this point forever, Congress is a co-equal branch. And you know, whenever you have a major opinion, not an individual legitimate case or controversy, but a, a case where it's clearly not individualized, it's clearly designed to chart a precedent on a broad-based political issue, you should have a le a, maybe a subcommittee of the Judiciary Committee. Call it the Legislative Review Subcommittee. And you shadow box the courts and you write opinions and say, no, here's where you're wrong and this is what we're going we're gonna to follow. We're going to write – again, we're not going to adjudicate that individual case. But if you're going to make it binding precedent or if you're going to desire to do that, no. Here's what we're going to do as it relates to the country politically. So anyway, I urge you guys to, to read that. Um, but again, there, there's nobody home in Congress, nobody home. Um, and, and by the way, just, just – to go back to Mitch McConnell and nobody home. So a lot of people are going to say, well, Daniel, the one thing Mitch McConnell is doing is he's a, he's expediting the procedures 
So Trump is appointing and successfully confirming a record number of circuit court judges for his first year, year and a half in office. And right before leaving, before the vacation, McConnell did file cloture on six new nominees. That will bring the total by next week of um, Trump appointees to the circuit courts to 21. So (laughs) there's a lot to say about this. And I've written a number of articles. You could Google one, um, Google my name, and why appointing better judges will not help. Why Trump will not be able to remake the circuits. And my concern is all this does, not that I'm inherently against it, you know, appoint as good of a judge as you can, it just further raises the specter that Congress is impotent and they have no power other than, oh, let's get better judges on to fuel the judicial supremacy. Because the courts are everything. They're so important that the only thing we can do is appoint better judges, and then it's all in the court's hands. There's nothing we can do. Not true. Not true, as you'll see in, in this article. It just isn't. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get to this, and we're going to go over this in more detail. But I'm just telling you, if you look circuit by circuit where none of these commentators that push this political morphine, and that's what it is. It's political morphine for those of us on the right. Oh, Trump's remaking the judiciary. He has better judges. Most of, most of the vacancies that have been created are by relatively good judges. Maybe some of them are better appointees, but the Republican appointees, for the most part, some of them are really good ones, like Danny Boggs in the Sixth Circuit. He left. Batchelder, who's probably the best remaining one in the Sixth Circuit, she's retiring. Janice Rogers-Brown, um, the best, one of the best circuit judges all across the country, she retired from the D.C. Circuit. Um, Fifth Circuit, Edith Clement is retiring. I mean, we're losing a lot of them. On the Fourth Circuit, we're losing, and that Fourth Circuit is gone anyway, um, Judge Shedd. A lot of the ones retiring are the best ones because they feel it's safe to retire now. So you have to look at what vacan- which vacancies we're filling. Um, even the Democrat appointees, a lot of them are in circuits that don't matter, meaning some of them are in the eighth where we already had the eighth. Now we'll totally have the eighth. But the left won't go to the eighth circuit for their stuff. Um, or conversely, there's a, there are going to be a bunch of vacancies on the Ninth Circuit. But I will tell you, there's I don't know of a single originalist on the Ninth Circuit. I forget how many judges, active judges there are. There maybe 27, 28, 29, some, somewhere in that ballpark. Let, let's say the left has a 27 to 2 majority now. So even if Trump appoints six, it, we're still nowhere towards um, – making up the difference. Now, maybe you'll be lucky and in a random selection of three judges, you can get two out of three good ones then at, by the end of Trump's term, but then they'll just reverse it in bunk. So, I mean, is it? it's better than nothing, but I mean, in the long run, we're losing it. And again, it has nothing to do with even the number of judges. It's the entire notion of what is placed in a court. They have the ACLU. They have all of the, you know, the NAACP. They have the entire legal profession that has the resources and 50 years of manipulated laws concerning the laws of standing to completely tilt the playing field. From the law schools to the legal groups, all the way up to the law clerks and the law judges. They control everything. So you're not going to really make a difference. 
if you don't statutorily fix the rules of standing, fix their jurisdiction. And these are some of the things I go over in this article. But of course, Mitch McConnell be heralded as heralded as a uh, some sort of a hero. Oh, because he's really aggressive on appointing good judges. No, he blocks any effort to actually do what it will take to fix the judiciary. This whole appointing better judges thing has been political morphine that numbs our senses to the insanity of what the courts are doing to this country for the past 60 years, but most evidently the past few years, and it prevents us from doing what we need to do. And one other thing, by the way, on on Mitch McConnell and, and his wife being a political hack and enforcer, it's interesting that she's also on the board of News Corp, which owns Fox News. You know, I don't have evidence of this, but you know, I know Eric Erickson did write about this and say that, you know, anyone who was critical of McConnell didn't get airtime on Fox News. And, you know, a while back, the one who ran FoxOpinion.com, you know, just asking people to submit opinion pieces, uh, they they like they, they felt I was pretty provocative and they asked me to write pieces, and then shortly afterwards, it was just cut off. You know, it wasn't I was never paid or anything, so it wasn't anything official. They just um, stopped taking anything, and you know, I never pursued it. I didn't care. But I always wondered if Elaine Chow got wind of who I was, because it's interesting. You know, I was on Mark Levin's TV show, which is through Fox now, a couple weeks ago, and to begin with, you know, I was on with Charlie Kirk, who's who's a great guy. I have nothing against him. I'm just saying they were promoting him. They didn't promote me at all. And then, you know, you'd think afterwards I'm on for a full hour, I say, you know, pretty provocative stuff. You'd want to have me back on some of the other Fox shows. And, you know, <laughs> let's just say that's not happening. And I don't care. I'm certainly not going to realign what I'm saying so I can get on Fox News. I really don't care. I'd much rather speak the truth. But, uh, again, that, that, that's what Mitch McConnell is doing to enforce uh, the rules in the party. But otherwise, I mean, it's lights out. It's lights out. Why don't they just board up the buildings? Turn off the lights and board up the buildings and leave. Why even have a a legislative branch of government? Which brings me to the caravan. By most accounts, I like what I'm seeing from DHS, um, from the Trump administration. They are pushing back. They are so far... Blocking entry. This is at a point, an official point of entry, um, the Tijuana San Diego crossing, and the border agents aren't letting them in to the processing, so they refuse to process them. Hopefully, that will hold up. Now, like like I'm telling you, watch for the courts to get involved. But you know, where is Congress? I obviously wrote a bunch of articles a couple weeks ago noting how the UACs and the asylum seekers, it's all bogus. Even under existing statute, we could totally turn them away. But still, why isn't Congress dealing with this? Why isn't Congress passing laws hitting remittances, dealing with sanctuary cities, dealing with the magnets, birthright citizenship, education for illegals, which is a huge unfunded MS-13 mandate liability on the state and local governments. Why aren't they tightening up asylum statute and the UAC statute just to at least make it clear? 
clearer than it is now. Nothing. They're, they're not home. They should be using this every day, using the images of people climbing over a border. Do they want to win the election? Well, I guess they don't. They're completely out to lunch. And like I said, you know, last week we ended off last episode. This is episode 219. We had Dr. Stefan Curtez on to discuss just how government is hurting the American people by practicing medicine and cutting off pain medication under the guise of dealing with the opioid crisis when the opioid crisis is all an illicit drug problem from the border, from a lack of interior enforcement on the interior distributors for the drug cartels who are all foreign nationals who should be thrown out, at least at the primary trafficking level, them as 13 gangs, and nothing. They have 100 pieces of legislation to deal with a healthcare problem that doesn't exist and obfuscate this problem. And let me tell you something. As Brandon Judd, the head of the ICE, um, not the ICE, the CBP uh, uh, Council, the Border Patrol Council Union, he told us on the show a couple of weeks ago that whenever you see this caravan coming through, keep in mind there's only a couple dozen border agents in a given area actually patrolling the border. There really aren't that many. It's a whole other controversy why many of them aren't placed on border duties and they're just placed behind a desk. But they they go and, and keep them busy dealing with these caravans of phony asylum seekers. Now, some of them might be drug mules, but a lot of times that's a diversion tactic, and that's when they bring in through the gaps now created by preoccupying the Border Patrol. That's when you bring in the fentanyl and the heroin and all, all sorts of other stuff. And MS-13 gangsters now coming in. It's a whole nother one caught at the border. This is a growing problem. I'm seeing a lot of articles on this. Congress is completely absent on their core duties of protecting the American people, protecting our sovereignty and our security at a time like this. Nothing doing there. What is so amazingly dangerous about all of this is the drug crisis. So that's actually something Congress is doing a lot about. They got over 100 pieces of legislation, all misdiagnosing it, all dealing with health care, when this is all an illicit drug problem as a result of open borders and sanctuary cities and the lack of interior enforcement. And there's just drugs pouring over with these illegal aliens, and they're not doing anything about it. You know what was interesting the guest we had on last week, Dr. Stefan Curtez, I didn't even know at the time he was a liberal. You know, I saw his articles, I saw his peer-reviewed journal work, um, and he was making the case that, you know, government going after doctors and tightening up prescriptions and Medicare coverage for prescriptions at a time when prescription opioids had already dropped towards, you know, to 15-year lows in most states— would really hurt long-term chronic pain patients. And he made a lot of the points we were making that it's not even a prescription drug problem problem anymore, uh, and, and you're getting it wrong. Now, I saw his article in Slate magazine, which obviously is a leftist magazine. I didn't know exactly what he was. I knew he wasn't a conservative. But we had him on, and we had a great discussion. And it, it wasn't until I brought up Medicaid expansion, and he kind of disagreed, then I sensed he might have been a liberal. So anyway, when he got off the air, we, we talked for an hour, and that's when I learned he was a liberal. 
and we had a, we had a great discussion, and and I told him the other half of this that he would have never understood. I said, you know, you're basically saying what I'm saying, but you know, what what is the problem? It's a border problem, and I demonstrated to him the timing of 2013 to 2015, all of the things that happened. You know, the release of 8,000 drug dealers, all criminal aliens, all foreign nationals from ICE just in the year 2015. I don't have the data for the other years, but tremendous amount. The immigration judges, they increased, and we have an article on this coming out tomorrow. Uh, they increased the number of people they gave relief to. It used to be about a 30% rate of relief. It went up to about 55%, meaning all people that came before immigration judges are just let go. In places like New York and Boston, big drug hubs, that was 80%. And he was shocked by it. And I, I gave him this whole new view of immigration. You know, because Dr. Stefan is a, he's a very, um, if you heard him last week, he works with the homeless, medical care for that, and he's kind of a bleeding heart guy, and it comes from a good place. But I said, you understand that when you have a climate, an environment, a market you create for open borders to smuggle seamlessly with young illegal immigrants, you understand that's the antithesis of sympathy because there's your drug crisis. And it really opened his eyes. And I thought, wow, wouldn't it be amazing if we could have such a dialogue with other people, it, it was just um, just a bold contrast to what you see in Washington. This just hateful rhetoric back and forth, where ironically, when it comes to the discernible policy outcomes, the parties are closer together than ever. But you know, just rhetorically, they just trash each other. Whereas here, you know, I'm a, as conservative as they get. This guy was a bleeding heart liberal, and you know, we agreed on most of the opioid crisis. We had him on the show. And we had a great conversation. I really felt that. You know, if we actually had citizens, ordinary citizens working this stuff out, you'd really be able to bridge that divide based on on facts, um, you know, at least with reasonable people. So that that's just something I wanted to share with you. That was the first time we had here on the conservative conscience a liberal, and I didn't, I didn't even realize how liberal he was until uh, till the end. That you know, it, it just shows how when when people are committed to truth, there's a lot you could get done with shared values. So um, so that's with that. Our own border crisis. Now, I want to discuss the next thing Congress is completely derelict in the prism of one of the other many important news stories. So obviously, I'm assuming most of you guys heard earlier this afternoon at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel, delivered this riveting, almost like PowerPoint presentation of physical evidence of Iran's nuclear deal, how Basically, the Mossad must have gotten into Iran's secret archives, smuggled out 100,000 documents, CDs, copied all this stuff, and they have the originals uh, buried somewhere in Israel. And, you know, number one, obviously, just the demonstration of power, it just humiliates Iran. And it puts them on notice because now they don't know exactly what they got and what they don't have, but they know that there's a lot more than what Netanyahu presented publicly. Um, you know, they, they just tried to make the basic case to the public, but they weren't going to divulge their the, the most important details yet. Uh, there's no question they're keeping that to themselves. But, you know, what was clear about, you know, first let's just talk about his revelation. And I want to try to get on Jordan Schachtel later this week, our national security correspondent, to focus exclusively on this. But I want to just briefly discuss the importance of it and then link it back to what's 
important for America and why Congress is derelict and then kind of juxtapose it to our own sovereignty and security. Basically, a, a lot of the defenders of the Iran deal are saying, well, he didn't prove any or provide any evidence that Iran is now cheating on it. He just said that they, they developed stuff and were working on stuff for years. Well, we knew that. That's why we needed, needed an Iran deal. Well, the irony is they denied that the entire time. Um, here's the most important detail. You're going to get into a lot of nuclear jargon, a lot of funny things, but basically the important, um, the important aspect of the Iran deal was this. Here's the one thing you need to know about it. It provided for restrictions and regulations and a regime and uh, um, uh, an inspection regime solely in the facilities that we knew they didn't have any nuclear activity, and it exempted all the ones we knew had nuclear activity from any restrictions. So, I mean, what we're seeing in fighting are the restrictions enough, are they not enough? And there's a lot to say about that. There's a lot of details. But the most important thing that's often lost on people is there was a clandestine operation and there was an open operation. The open operation was bullcrap. That's the one that they put all the restrictions on. So not just the facilities we never heard of and they we knew that they had, but even the ones that they that we knew they had in Iraq, Ifshan, Fordo, and Nacha, Natanz. Um, those four, it placed no restrictions on. And Netanyahu spoke to, about the Fordo facility, where you know they were saying that they never pursued anything. So here it is, go go inspect it. And we were all saying, what do you mean? They shut that down a long time ago. There's a clandestine program out there that they always developed. They denied it. The Europeans denied it. Ben Rhodes denied it. Obama administration denied it. By Netanyahu proving that that ex not only existed, but that in the last couple of years it changed names, their programs, but but the Fordow facility, the one that that program that he talked about, the Arad program, whatever the name was, was renamed but organized under the same nuclear scientist, still exists. So, gee, let me ask you a question. Do you think once we prove conclusively that they had a nuclear program, and then they, they then changed its names. And then we gave them tens of billions of dollars to promote more of this and their ICBM program and terrorism and all their stuff with Hezbollah. And by the way, we're directly giving money to Hezbollah. Suddenly, they're going to willingly give up their nuclear pro program in the facilities that we never even checked. Well, Daniel, there's no proof they're doing it now. I'm sure they got that proof there. They weren't going to divulge it. But that's all you need to know. I mean, the whole premise was that a, a clandestine operation never really existed. This was it. So if you inspect it, you can ensure that they're not doing anything wrong. And now we know they had it in these facilities that we never checked. And I'm, again, I'm sure they had mountains of stuff. So that's the main point of the Iran deal exposure from Netanyahu today. And we're going to discuss that more later this week. But my point getting back to our security we have our entire Middle East policy still from the Obama administration oriented around the Iran deal, where we're basically fighting the Sunni insurgency on behalf of Iran. There's a great article out in Tablet Magazine by, uh, I believe it's Lee Smith, it might be someone else, 
how we're continuing to give a bunch of stuff to Hezbollah. Oh, I'm sorry. It's the Lebanese Armed Forces. Why is there no emergency from Congress now in light of Netanyahu's speech to come back, abrogate the Iran deal, force the Democrats to vote on it, slap a round of comprehensive sanctions on them, freeze all their assets, stop funding Hezbollah, stop support for Baghdad, support Kurds against Iran and Baghdad. And notice I'm not talking about even landing any troops anywhere. But use every tool of statecraft to undermine the Iranian regime. Now, again, Trump could do a lot of that without Congress. But where are they? And instead, we have the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, Matt Thornberry, and many others saying, oh, we should keep the Iran deal. I mean, he said this before Netanyahu's presentation last week, but I mean, that's what we have there. They're completely out to lunch. You're never going to get more momentum than Israel having 100,000 documents they're sitting on with proof to go on offense and put the Democrats on defense on this issue. But no, they're going to wait till next week to come back, and I'm sure even next week they won't do anything. By the way, one other point here. Isn't it interesting how Israel has the ability to send agents and run some sort of multifaceted operation, presumably with Iranian defectors, to smuggle out, I don't even know how you smuggle this stuff out, just an enormous amount of stuff from Iran's archives. I mean, deep in the belly of their government in Tehran. This is not some obscure place somewhere. All the photographs they got. Yet, you look at our government, and we can't even maintain control of our own sovereignty from a bunch of caravans and drug cartels. Let me tell you something. If Israel were America and we had a leader like Netanyahu, we wouldn't have a drug crisis. I don't mean we wouldn't have drugs, but I, we wouldn't have this sort of epidemic. We wouldn't have an illegal alien crisis. Wouldn't be like, oh, there's nothing we can do about the drug cartels. They would have bombed those poppy fields a long time ago, dismantled the drug cartels within a matter of weeks. Give me a break. It's right on our border. I mean, if Israel is able to send people into a relatively strong country in the heart of their government and steal all that stuff from Iran, I'm sure a sane country with sane leaders could protect our sovereignty. Oh, Daniel, there's nothing we can do. Are you kidding me? If not for the political correctness, we could throw out every single criminal alien from this country tomorrow. And that would include about 90% of the drug traffickers in this entire country. Watch the supply go down. The prices of of heroin skyrocket. Then come back to me if we have a crisis. Now, I wish we had a leader like that that would use PowerPoint, a presentation, just build a case like that. Our congressional leaders, our president. We'll see what happens. But where are our leaders from Congress Giving tr- Trump's intuition is good on the issue. He wants to get out of the deal, but Macron and Merkel are working him over. You still have idiots in this administration working him over to adopt the Iran deal 2.0. And Congress is out to lunch. Congress is completely out to lunch because anything like this should be voted on in Congress. But they're out to lunch. This is so unpopular in America. Chuck Schumer, 
the leader of Senate Democrats was forced to, obviously begrudgingly, and there was no meaning behind it, it was a hope yes, vote no, vote against the Iran deal, but he did vote officially vote against it. That's how unpopular it was even among many de- Democrat voters. Nothing, out to lunch, out to lunch. But the point is we need a conservative movement that's going to focus on this stuff, focus on what we can and should be looking, a forward-looking movement. You know, you saw that article from last week where Republicans said they're gonna, their strategy is to run against Hillary Clinton. Are you kidding me? We're looking in the past? Look in the here and now. You don't have enough to run on? I guess they don't. National security, Iran, borders, drug crisis. And I didn't even have time to get to healthcare today. And Alfie Evans, you know, in the coming days, I'm going to work on articles demonstrating how government has empowered a private insurance cartel and a private health conglomerate cartel on the provider side, on pharmacy side, hospital side, uh, doctor's practices, to buy everything up. Not the free market dictating that, but statute, government programs like Medicare, Medicaid, tilting the, pl- level, tilting the playing field towards them. And then they serve as stewards for the state, kind of like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac or the post office, GSEs, where they're going to control our health care. We need legislation to have freedom, deregulate insurance, where anyone could come in and, and, and compete. We need to immediately put legislation, legislation on the floor, forcing Democrats in an up and down or down vote on physician-owned hospitals. Barring physicians from owning hospitals. So basically, it's either government hospitals or these big conglomerates that are empowered by government. You tell me how we're not going to have Alfie Evans situations in the future when we already have it, like we noted last week, with pain patients, with government cutting off the supply of manufacturing, the payment of prescriptions because government controls most of the dollars with Medicare and Medicaid, and by extension, private insurance because it's the same contractors that run Medicare and Medicaid that offer the so-called private plans that aren't private. But we need more DPC in this country, direct primary care. We need more health sharing ministries. We're going to discuss ways to push this issue. But of course, Mitch McConnell says no going after health care. These are the important issues. And then of course, of course, the courts. We're going to continue focusing on that. Um, obviously, I didn't have time I picked I picked pretty bad timing with the whole Iran thing blowing up to put out my article, 10 Ways Congress Can Reclaim Power from the Courts, but I'd like you guys to, to see it. Um, I'm going to continue fo- focusing on that, promoting that for the you know next few days. I might just have to wait until you know a quiet day when the courts come back up in the news, but uh, spread it far and wide. Congress has the power to go after every aspect of the courts. Don't ever think that they're the final word and... You know, you need a constitutional amendment. These are all ideas that do not require a constitutional amendment. So um, that's it. That's it, folks. We got to have a narrative. And boy, oh boy, if we wanted to, we could have an amazing narrative to defend our country, our sovereignty, our security, our society. Look at the leader that Israel has to defend their prerogatives. Why can't we have the same thing in our country? That's my challenge to you guys today. Anyway, thanks for listening. God bless y'all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conservative Conscience.